1: That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500.
2: I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, the U.S. faces some tough questions on public health and public safety. Americans are gathering for the holidays, some for the first time in years, but health officials are warning a pandemic-weary populace of the dangers posed by a triple threat of respiratory viruses.
3: Masking, vaccine, boosting, testing, all of that is part of the spectrum of protecting yourself and your family.
2: We'll check in with President Biden's chief medical advisor, Dr. Anthony Fauci, as he prepares to step down next month. Then, after a string of deadly mass shootings, a new reckoning with a familiar question. What can America's leaders do to stop them? The idea we still allow semi-automatic weapons to be purchased is sick, just sick. We'll ask a top Democratic leader, South Carolina Congressman Jim Clyburn, whether Capitol Hill can deliver on President Biden's push to ban assault weapons. And we'll speak to Colorado Governor Jared Polis about the challenge of enforcing existing gun laws. He'll share the latest on that shooting at an LGBTQ nightclub. Plus, former Homeland Security Secretaries Jay Johnson and Michael Chertoff on what Democrats and Republicans can do together to stem the violence and prepare our immigration system for a change at the southern border. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. For many Americans, Thanksgiving felt almost normal this year. But a year after the deadly surge of COVID's Omicron variant, we're not out from under the virus just yet. The CDC says a new COVID variant of concern, XBB, has surfaced in the U.S., And on the other side of the world, China is reporting a fourth daily record of new COVID infections as an unprecedented wave of protests ripples across the country. Demonstrators from Shanghai to Beijing are taking to the streets in anger over China's zero COVID policies that have kept much of the country under pandemic quarantine for years. Those restrictions are weighing on the global economy and threaten to snarl supply chains ahead of the holidays. But we begin this morning in the US with the danger posed by three respiratory viruses. We spoke with President Biden's chief medical adviser earlier and asked him about the risks for people congregating this season.
3: The risk depends on what your status of vaccination is. We have two of the three of the trifecta that you're talking about. We have vaccinations for clearly COVID, particularly with the updated boosters that are now available. We have vaccinations for influenza. We're already starting to see an early surge of both flu and RSV. We don't have a vaccine for RSV. This is particularly problematic for children five years of age and younger and for the elderly. But there are things you can do with RSV is avoid congregate settings, and particularly if you have a cold or if you're sneezing and stay home, wear a mask, wash your hands.
2: You said last time, Test going in and test coming out.
3: Test yourself before you congregate with people, particularly when you're having someone over for dinner, five, 10, 15, 20 people. It's mm-hmm. easy to do.
2: I want to ask you about RSV, though, specifically with little kids. Um, these infections are overwhelming. Pediatric hospital wars yes. around the country. The Children's Hospital Association and the American Academy of Pediatrics say it's a public health emergency. Is it an emergency?
3: In some regions of the country, we're seeing that the hospital system for pediatrics are at the point of almost being overwhelmed. When you have like almost all the intensive care beds that are occupied, it's bad for the children who have RSV and need intensive care, but it also occupies all the beds. And children who have a number of other diseases that require intensive care, or ICU, Mm -hmm. they don't have the bed for it. Hopefully, we're going to see that peak come down, because if you look at other countries that have had those kinds of peaks with flu and RSV, it's peaked early, but come down.
2: More than 100,000 parents last month had to stay home from work to care for kids, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And we've seen schools in Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee cancel classes because of these large numbers. So coming out of the holidays, should parents expect schools to shut down?
3: I don't know, uh, uh, Margaret. I'm not sure. When when you talk about shutting down schools, there's always the collateral issue. That's also radioactive. (laughs) It is, exactly. There's always the collateral issue. So you have to balance, and you do it in real time, depending upon the viral load of disease in your region. Some of these
2: places just didn't even have teachers. Exactly.
3: Well, that's the local decision you're going to have to make. It's a local issue. That's the thing that gets lost in the discussion.
2: So how do people, knowing everything you just laid out, how do they calculate their risk and protect themselves? I mean, for an older person, is it something they need to think twice about when it comes to sitting across from their grandchild at Christmas?
3: Yeah, I mean, it is a judgment call. And one of the things you have to be careful of is that look around not only for your own protection, but for the protection of the people that you're going to be in contact with, particularly, as you mentioned quite correctly, the elderly, those with underlying conditions. But there's also something that is even more risky. People who are profoundly immune compromised, people who are on cancer chemotherapy, people who have a variety of other diseases. You've got to use common sense. I mean, the idea of coming into a crowded place and you're going home to someone who's immune compromised, it just makes sense to put a mask on.
2: You recently had COVID. I did. I wonder how that changes when you calculate your risk these days. And and how long do you think immunity actually lasts?
3: Well, we know how much antibody immunity lasts because you can measure antibodies. They go up and they come down pretty quickly. It is entirely likely that although you may get infected with mild symptoms, Mm -hmm. the degree of protection against severe disease may be much more prolonged than the very transient degree of protection against infection. Let me give you an example. You measured me. I'm an elderly person, so my immune system isn't as robust as it was 30, 40 years ago. I was vaccinated, doubly boosted, and I got infected. Now, the, the antibodies that were circulating in my body were not enough to protect me from getting infected. But it is very likely that the vaccination and double boosting that I had protected me from getting a severe outcome, Mm -hmm. that if I didn't have that, I very well might have gotten very seriously ill. And I had a very mild infection. I want people to understand is that although you may get infected with these new variants that are related to the Omicron, you may not be protected against infection. You're doing a pretty good job. Are protecting you against severe You're disease. You're making a
2: case for vaccination. I'm and totally these, making but, a case. <laughs> I'm asking because people think, oh, I got a three month free pass. I just had COVID. Yeah. But they can still get new variants. They it, can still get sick.
3: Yes. In
2: that window of time.
3: Exactly. Exactly. So you really want to keep up on your boosters, mm-hmm. because the, the the protection clearly wanes. It wanes much more for for infection than it does for severe disease. But it does wane.
2: So what is the prevalent strain that you think we are going to be facing this winter? And does the recent booster shot, the bivalent, protect against it?
3: Okay. The ones that are on our minds right now that you do remember is the BQ1 and the Mm BQ1.1. The reason you keep an eye on those is that they have what's called a transmission advantage in that they are evasive of the protection that you have. Mm -hmm. Those viruses evade the protection of the monoclonal antibodies, Evusheld, and some of the other monoclonal antibodies that are used for treatment as well as prevention. It also diminishes the protection that is induced by vaccination and by prior infection. It doesn't disappear, Mm -hmm. but it brings it down a few fold.
2: So are you envisioning that in the spring we're going to have to get a new sort of cocktail of booster shots to match this new threat?
3: I don't know, because Mm -hmm. it really depends on what is going to happen in the spring. If we get, and this is what I'm hoping for, I'm a cautious optimist, by the time we get to the spring, the level of immunity that's induced by infection, with or without vaccination, with or without boosters among the entire population is such that the level of severe disease and infection is going to go way, way down. And you won't require having every four months or so giving somebody a boost. You heard us, we in the public health arena talk about the likelihood of getting a cadence of maybe once a year that you get it with the flu shot, Mm -hmm. just like the flu shot. But It's a little bit iffy about that. That's good because there's a neatness to that. You know, once a year you get it in the fall. But that doesn't take into account that you have to keep up the possibility that we will get a variant that's very different than the variants we have right now that might require a springtime or some summertime boost. If it stays the way it is now, I hope it just gets down to that very low level.
2: And we'll have more of our conversation with Dr. Fauci ahead in the program. But right now, I want to speak to House Majority Whip Democratic Congressman Jim Clyburn, who joins us from Santee, South Carolina, this morning. Uh, Congressman, it's good to have you uh, on the program. I I want to start with what has happened in the past two weeks. We've had these three mass shootings. Back in June, you helped to push through this bipartisan investment in shoring up red flag laws and background checks, $13 billion expansion. And yet in Virginia, both of the gun buyers legally purchased their weapons. Allegedly, so did the one in in Colorado. What does that tell you about the efficacy of the federal law?
4: Well, thank you very much for having me. It tells me all I need to know and that is just because it's legal does not make it the right thing. I tell people all the time the institution of slavery was legal, but it was not right. Just because they purchased these weapons legally does not mean that's what the law ought to be. We need to change these laws. Unfortunately, I'm going to be here uh, in my district uh, on Wednesday speaking at the funeral service of one of those young. Football players from the University of Virginia, who died at the hands uh, of a weapon that was, from indication legally purchased. That's not the problem. Chesapeake, uh, B- Virginia, mm-hmm. uh, that gun was purchased legally the morning of the event. We have to visit these laws and do what is necessary to keep these guns out of the hands of people who should not. Have them, and that is what we need to do in this lame duck session. And in a bipartisan way, let's protect the American people from the many people, and make sure uh, that we put some safety and security in people's when they're shopping, when they're sitting in
2: well, churches. Yeah. Well, I, well, what about that lame duck session? Because Democrats have control for a few more weeks. President Biden came out and said he wants to institute an assault weapons ban. Uh, an assault weapon, an AR-15 style, was used in Colorado, but not in those two Virginia shootings. So, is is the problem that type of weapon? And and if that is the solution you're putting forward, how do you get sixty votes in the Senate? Well, I don't know
4: how we get sixty votes in the Senate. And that's why I always take issue with the fact we do not control uh, the Senate. It's 50-50 in the Senate. And that is a problem for us. We need to sit down in a bipartisan way and say, look, what can we do to protect the public? Nobody wants to take anybody's guns away. The Second Amendment is there to protect everybody. But so is the First Amendment. But it's not unfettered. Well, so what uh, are you going clear. to do in the
2: lame duck? You just said in the lame duck you have to take action. What does that mean? What are Democrats going to do?
4: Well, we've already passed the bills in the House. We're trying to get the Senate to act. We've done this on the House side. And so that's the problem. Democrats control the House. Right. And we passed the bill. We do not control and- the Senate. And that's where the filibuster is causing us problems.
2: Right. And in the new... Congress after January, is the prospect of any kind of gun reform uh, dead on arrival? Or can you pick off some votes from Kevin McCarthy's um, caucus here to help move something when when Democrats are in the minority?
4: Well, you know, if you look at the results of the election, uh, you go to California, you go to New York, uh, even in uh, two districts in North Carolina, when we picked up seats, We do have a more moderate electorate coming in, and we need to appeal uh, to a sense of fundamental fairness and what is right. Mm -hmm. I have no idea whether or not they will buck what seems to be uh, controlling the Republicans, but we're going to give it a shot.
2: So White House advisor Anita Dunn was on this program a few weeks ago, and she said in the next few weeks, while Democrats have the majority, priority number one is just keeping the government funded. Um, Exactly what is your top priority? I mean, what can Democrats get done before Republicans take control?
4: Well, I would agree with Anita Dunn. Uh, It's always the top priority, keeping the government funded and keeping it open.
2: That seems a bare minimum.
4: Absolutely. But uh, we need to go further than that. We need to look at the John R. Lewis Voter Rights Act. I'm not going to get off of that. I do believe that we need to do something about the Electoral uh, Account Reform Act. These two things are fundamental uh, to our democracy, and we need to keep them in the forefront. Yes, keep the government open, but let's also keep fundamental rights protected. And that, to me, will be and to and these gun safety laws will be closely there.
2: Democrats are holding leadership elections in, in the coming week. You're already in leadership. I know you will be standing for election to a different position. But if it is time for a new generation, as Speaker Pelosi had said, why do you think it's necessary for you to stay in power? Do you think the next generation needs you to guide them?
4: Well, you know, I've always said there is a healthy respect. It's biblical with me. We need to have a healthy blend of strength and knowledge. And look at our leadership. The South is left out of it. and what I'm doing is trying to make sure that we do not tilt too far to the east or too far to the west, but maintain what we have here. There's no other Southerner among uh, the leadership ranks and we need the South. We need these historical black colleges and universities, but for Georgia, where would the Senate be today? Yeah. And the last time I checked, Georgia is South for okay. South Carolina.
2: All right, well, thank you very much, Mr. Whip, for joining us today. Um, and we wanna continue that conversation uh, about uh, some of the national security risks, including gun violence. We're going to do that now with two former uh, homeland security chiefs. I've got Jay Johnson, who served under former President Obama. He's in Montclair, New Jersey, this morning, and Michael Chertoff held job under former President George W. Bush. He's at home in Washington, D.C. Um, good morning to you both, gentlemen. Uh, you just heard the conversation. Uh, Representative Clyburn says you got to work together, but also said they can't get anything done in the Senate. So, where does that leave us in the wake of three shootings? Is further legislation just not something we should even be talking about at this point?
5: Well, Well, I think we could get some um, legislation on assault weapons, Um, and, you know, that would be helpful, but recognize no law is going to deal with the problem entirely. As you pointed out, you have people who legally bought guns and then committed these horrible acts. So, although legislation is part of the solution, another part of the solution is dealing with what is emerging to be a, almost a mental health crisis leading to violent acts.
2: Jay, sorry, uh, Jay Johnson there, I want you to jump in. I mean, it was a handgun in Charlottesville, Virginia. It was a handgun uh, in um, Chesapeake, Virginia. It was an AR-15 style in Colorado Springs. So is it the, the, a gun crisis? Is it a mental heath, health crisis? Which is it?
6: Well, first and foremost, Margaret, I believe that the problem, the central problem, the common thread through all of these incidents is the prevalence of guns in America. Uh, the individual circumstances of each episode tend to be a little different. The motive tends to be different. The location is different. Uh, the weapon is different. But the problem we have in this country nationwide is the prevalence of guns in America. I do not for a second give up on the possibility of further gun safety legislation. Uh, We we have to get off this point of view of the NRA that if they give an inch, we're going to take a mile. Uh, We can regulate guns in America consistent with the Second Amendment, consistent with the constitutional right of a responsible gun owner to own a gun, for, for mm-hmm. hunting, for, for their own personal safety of their family. And Mike is also right. Uh, there's more to do on the, on the mental health front. Uh, there's more to do to raise awareness uh, among coworkers, families, uh, people in school yeah. about the warning signs of someone heading toward violence so that the, the signs are undeniable at some point.
2: But how do you solve for a mental health crisis, Uh, (laughs) Secretary Chertoff? I mean, where do you begin?
5: Well, I know we we begin with what we call red flag laws in which uh, someone's guns can be taken away if there's a report that they have uh, propensity to violence or they've been talking about doing something that would involve killing people. So certainly enforcing those red flag, flag laws is a positive step. More generally, I think we need off-ramps for people who are troubled and prone to be violent that do not involve the criminal justice process. So we encourage family members to step forward and get Mm -hmm. help for someone who might, given the passage of time, pick up a gun and do an act of violence. And finally, I do think the social media have a responsibility to monitor for violent, inciting rhetoric on public platforms Unfortunately, we see a lot of the people who've carried out these attacks literally announce them in advance. And the tragedy is nobody intervenes to stop it.
2: But, uh, Secretary Jay Johnson, I mean, you just heard me talk about with Jim Clyburn, the fact that there were red flag laws in place in, in for example, Colorado. Um, each state has sort of different attributes to their laws and who can call in a worry to remove guns from the household of someone? Is this just going to continue to be a patchwork of different problems because of the federal system?
6: I think Mike and I both know that in these cases uh, it is almost always certain that the warning signs are apparent. People often don't want to see them, however. The, the, The parent doesn't want to see them uh, the good friend in school doesn't want to see them. Um, the co-worker doesn't want to see them, doesn't want to report. And so, as I said before, I think it's important that we raise awareness about what these warning signs mm-hmm. are, in fact. Uh, could we better enforce our red flag laws? Could we encourage people to invoke them, to utilize them more often? Absolutely. I agree with yeah. Mike on that. But okay. the warning signs are almost always there. They're undeniable.
2: I want to talk more about this with both of you in a moment, but I have to take a quick break. So please stay with us. And all of you, please stay with us as well. Face the Nation will be back in a minute.
1: Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply.
7: Man, that sunset is gorgeous.
8: Grill, patio, sunset? Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in.
7: Oh, burger time.
8: So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you.
7: I could stay here forever.
8: Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today.
2: A pair of numbers this weekend offered some perspective on two American holiday traditions, traveling, And spending, 55 million people were in transit this week, the third busiest Thanksgiving travel season in more than 20 years, according to AAA. And consumers spent more than $9 billion online on Black Friday, according to Adobe Analytics. That's a record high, but up just over 2% from last year. Important caveat to note, due to soaring inflation, many spent more, but received less. with former Homeland Security secretaries, Jay Johnson and Michael Chertoff. Um, uh, Gentlemen, I I like being able to have you both here because you've both dealt with a very hard problem set. And so a lot of people have opinions, but you actually know what it's like to be in the job. So let me give you a really hard one, which is what to do about the southern border. Um, In the last year, two and a half million migrants roughly have been encountered. That is a record high. Uh, The governor of Texas is boasting that he's sent more than 13,000 immigrants to New York, to Chicago, to Washington, and now to Philadelphia, where busloads arrived this week. Um, Secretary Chertoff, these migrants have legal status because they're going through asylum. Are the asylum laws too generous in this country?
5: Well, I mean, we can certainly take a look at the asylum laws, but generally we obey international law, which talks about the obligation to receive refugees. And in fact, now we have the issue of Ukrainians who are fleeing what is going on with the war in Ukraine. So certainly you can understand why people seek asylum. One of the things the administration has done, which I think is helpful, is they've moved the evaluation process down to those agents who are actually in the field to speed it up to make sure you can determine whether there's a colorable claim, and if not, send people back. And they're also working to resource and streamline the process of making final adjudications. So that's all to the good, but it's not going to happen overnight. Also, I know the administration is working with nonprofits to create safe locations that people can stay while their claims are being adjudicated mm-hmm. i think stunts like what governor uh, abbott has done really don't address the problem they're simply a way of getting attention uh, over the backs of people who are fleeing genuine crises in other parts of the world
2: because to get asylum you need to show fear of persecution torture because of race religion nationality political opinion other reasons that's what these people did and were allowed in just to be clear um, uh, former Secretary Johnson, you know, one of the things that Biden administration just lost, though, is one of the tools they were using to turn people away. And over one million of those encounters I talked about were people were expelled under Title 42, according to Customs and Border Protection. This was a pandemic era policy that said because of covid, people didn't necessarily need to get in to the country. That goes away at the end of the, at the end of December. What then happens
6: Well, first, Margaret, I have to be honest about the asylum laws and the processing. Um, It takes six years right now to process an asylum claim once someone has entered this country, and one of the problems is that the the bar to qualify initially and establish a case of credible fear is relatively low, something like 70 percent of migrants qualify who seek it, and the ultimate qualification for asylum, the percentage there, is only about 20%, and it's six years in between. Migrants know this, and so we've got to develop a system where we can more expeditiously deal with these claims, but also take a look at the credible fear standard itself. I know my friends on the left won't be too happy to hear that. No politician's going to take that vote. But it does exist, and it's a phenomenon. Well, it can be done possibly through regulation, and I think it's something that ought to be looked at. Now, in terms of Title 42, uh, when CDC first announced in May that it was going to lift this, I and others were opposed to it. We thought there needed to be a more orderly transition. It is an extraordinary authority, and uh, it's probably time now for it to go away in December. But the ability to send people back expeditiously, like the administration has been doing, needs to now be replaced with something else. And I think there the discussion is going to have to take place with Mexico to more expeditiously accept people back. We sent back something like 1.4 million last year, uh, using in part Title 42, we need something to replace that. And I think working with the government of Mexico and frankly getting them to do more to step up on this is part of that answer.
2: I'd like for you both very quickly to weigh in on what happens if the Republican led Congress goes ahead with this vow to impeach or try to impeach the current Secretary of Homeland Security. Does that mean all the things you suggested don't happen and Congress is just tied knots? Secretary Chertoff?
5: Well, it would be a very sad day if in, in search of what is again a political stunt you know, threatening to impeach Secretary Mayorkas, Congress didn't do the things, for example, that Secretary Johnson just suggested. Maybe adjust the standard with respect to asylum, create more resources that are available to adjudicate, and work out additional ways to fund the effort to undermine the cartels and the smugglers, which are a big part of this. So Mm -hmm. it would be basically putting form over substance to go through a big performance on impeachment that's never going anywhere, rather than actually working with the administration to solve the problem.
2: And Secretary Johnson, I imagine you agree.
6: Margaret, what people need to know, and Michael and I know this: the Secretary of Homeland Security is focused on border security, maritime security, aviation security, cybersecurity, mm-hmm. the Coast Guard, the Secret Service, and a host of other things. Okay. Uh, we can't have a secretary who's distracted by by a, a stunt in Congress, uh, in an attempted at impeachment.
2: Thank All right. You. Thanks very much to both of you, secretaries, for weighing in. We'll be right back. We're back for more with Dr. Anthony Fauci. So the White House just asked Congress for another $10 billion in funding. Yes. We're, we're technically still in the middle of a pandemic, even though the president right. said pandemic's over.
3: We really do need that money for any of a number of reasons, one of which is a practical thing of, of outreach and PSA campaigns to get people to be vaccinated. We have a long way to go to optimize our protection mm-hmm. against COVID, which is really a shame, somewhat paradoxical, that a rich Country with all the vaccines that we need, and we're utilizing them at a much lower level than we should be.
2: I know you're planning to retire, and I asked you um, when you would feel comfortable retiring. And you said, Not until COVID's in the rear view mirror. You said, When COVID doesn't dominate the mental framework of our society. What you're saying is we're choosing not to let it dominate our mental framework. <laughs> well, exactly. But it is still very but much a risk. It's still
3: there. I mean, there's a difference. That, and that's an important point that I want to make. If you look at where we were a year ago at this time when Omicron started to surge, we were having 800 to 900,000 infections and 3,000 to 4,000 deaths. I don't like reading in the newspapers or getting my report from the COVID team. Today we lost 400 people. Today we lost 350 people. So, it's much much better than it was, but it is not at a level low enough where we should feel we're done with it completely because we're not.
2: There have been all these House Republican calls for investigations right. into the origins of COVID and saying they're going to bring you up to Capitol Hill. Do you think that wanes as you step down?
3: Well, I don't think it's going to wane for me. The Republican uh, House has -hmm. has said that they're going to. And that's fine with me. You'll appear. Oh, of course. I mean, I'm very much in favor of of legitimate oversight. Absolutely. I mean, I've testified before Congress, given the 38 years that I've been Mm -hmm. director, literally hundreds of times in many oversight hearings. It's never
2: been this personal for you, though. And I know when I talk to you. Um, a year ago, you you were angry. You said, I'm just going to do my job and I'm going to be saving lives and they're going to be lying.
3: They've clearly politicized it. I'm not political at all, period. I've never been. And anybody who knows anything about me knows that that's the case. But it is very clear when people are running their campaigns Mm -hmm. with an anti-Fauci element to it, I mean, that's ridiculous. Uh, I mean, this is a public health issue. I'd be more than happy to explain publicly or otherwise mm-hmm. everything that we've done. And I could defend and explain everything that we've done from a public health standpoint.
2: President Biden said the United States is asking China for more data yeah. about the origins. Yeah. Have you seen anything that Beijing has produced?
3: No. You know, one of the one of the problems is that and this is historic. It goes way back to bird flu flu the H5N1, the H7N9, the original SARS-CoV-1, that the Chinese, not necessarily the scientists that we know and we have dealt with and collaborated with productively for decades, but the whole establishment, a political and other establishment in China, even when there's nothing at all to hide, they act secretive, which absolutely triggers an appropriate suspicion of like, what the heck is going on over there? So right now, what we would really like to know is all of the details of what went on with the original people who were infected. We keep a completely open mind as to what the origin is. Having said that, if you look at the examination by highly qualified international scientists with no political Mm -hmm. agendas, They've published in peer-reviewed journals that the evidence is quite strong that this is a natural occurrence. Does that mean we've ruled out that there was something funny going on at leak? Absolutely. And I and all of my colleagues keep an absolutely open mind. We've got to investigate every possibility because Mm -hmm. this is too important not to do that.
2: Um, have you seen anything that Beijing has produced at all in terms of explanation or data?
3: Well, their explanation is an explanation that they will not allow us to look at the primary information. The mm-hmm. WHO went in and, and saw some of the data, which, some of which was actually quite helpful. But we, you know what we need, Margaret? We need a, 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 a transparency and a collaboration TO OPEN THINGS UP SO THAT WE COULD DISCUSS IT IN A NON-ACCUSATORY WAY. WHAT HAPPENS IS THAT IF YOU LOOK AT THE ANTI-CHINA APPROACH THAT CLEARLY THE TRUMP ADMINISTRATION HAD RIGHT FROM THE VERY BEGINNING AND THE ACCUSATORY NATURE, THE CHINESE ARE GOING TO FLINCH BACK AND SAY, NO, I'M SORRY, WE'RE NOT GOING TO TALK TO YOU ABOUT IT, WHICH IS NOT CORRECT. But they're they not talking be. to
2: the Biden administration about it either. Exactly. I
3: think that horse is out of the barn and they're very suspicious of anybody trying to accuse them.
2: One of the other things that's interesting to, to us when we watch how the world deals with COVID is the zero COVID policy in China, where they shut down almost fully cities and things. And that impacts the global economy. It's why we're still right. dealing with us in many ways. Um, why hasn't Beijing been able to get a Really effective vaccine. Why do they still struggle with this like that?
3: Well, it's the combination of not having an effective vaccine that they themselves made. It just is not nearly at the level of many of the other vaccines. It's just not. And that's unfortunate. And not wanting to bring in vaccines from the very beginning that were highly effective 94, 95% effective. Moderna, or the Moderna, Pfizer. the Pfizer, as well as locking down almost without a purpose. When you put restrictions, you do it to give you time to be able to do something productive so you can, un, you know, unloosen or loosen up the restrictions. They, too, at least from what we were seeing, were just rigidly closing things down, which unless you have a really, really good purpose of preparing yourself for opening, it, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense.
2: What do you plan to do after you leave NIH in December? What's next for you?
3: You know, I don't know, Margaret, and and the reason I don't know is I want to strictly stick to to the ethical guidelines of not negotiating what my next position, wherever that may be, in a university or in a foundation or in a whatever, until I actually step down. I want to continue to write and to lecture and utilize what I will have outside of a government position. What do I have? I have 54 years of experience as a scientist at the NIH. I have 38 years of experience leading the largest and most important infectious disease research institution in the world. And I've had the privilege of advising seven presidents. I could use that experience, that mm-hmm. know-how, that judgment to help others, to write about it, to, to lecture about it, and perhaps to encourage at a time of anti-science the best and the brightest among the young to at least consider a career in science, in public health, and importantly, in public service. If I can do that after I step down, I think that'll be you know, something that I would be pleased with.
2: We'll be watching. Thank Dr. You. Fauci, thank you for your time today. And we'll be right back.
1: At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories the early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.
8: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car.
2: I'm sorry for what your state has recently gone through with this horrendous shooting at Club Q. Uh, It sounds like the shooter had a handgun and an AR-15 style rifle. Can you confirm that he legally purchased them or were these unregistered ghost guns?
9: Uh, It has been reported uh, that at least one of the guns was was a ghost gun uh, by different media outlets. Uh, All of these facts will emerge in the coming days and weeks. Obviously, right now, our our heart is with the victims, uh, five people who lost their lives, their families dozens of others injured and, of course, many traumatized. Uh, Another example of a law that could have been used in this instance successfully is a red flag law, which we have in Colorado, but it's really up to the local uh, law enforcement entity how to use it. Um, In cases like this where somebody can potentially be a danger and there are signs that they are a danger, we have a legal way to temporarily remove custody of any weapons they might have, and this is an example of a case where it might have been used.
2: Well, I want to ask you about that because President Biden said it was ridiculous that red flag laws are not being enforced just based on the knowledge of this shooter rather than relying on his or her parents. Is the president correct? And are you saying right now that your local law enforcement was choosing not to enforce the law?
9: So right now in Colorado, you can have uh, parents or family members go for an extreme risk, risk protection order or red flag law. That's fairly common. It wasn't uh, it, you pursued in this instance by the mother. You can also have a local sheriff agency do it. In this case, it wasn't pursued by the local sheriff agency. I'm sure what will be looked into is why wasn't it pursued. What, what I think we're going to look at in Colorado is potentially expanding that, for instance, so DAs can also seek extreme risk protection orders. Uh, we also need to make sure that we uh, publicize the law and make sure that the tools are in people's hands when they need it to remove dangerous weapons that could be used for self-harm or harming others from somebody who's in a mental health crisis.
2: Mm -hmm. You said last week you didn't know yet if the shooter was motivated by anti-LGBTQ rhetoric or if it was a personal motive. Have you seen any evidence it was a hate crime? And does the fact that the shooter identifies as non-binary influence this in any way? Does this suggest anything to you?
9: Well, no, on the the second point of the the shooter's identity has nothing to do with whether hate crime was committed or not. I want to be clear in Colorado, uh, if you kill five people, you're behind bars the rest of your life. This uh, young man once convicted, and I believe he will be convicted because the evidence is overwhelming, will never uh, be able to uh, be freed from a jail cell. He'll spend the rest of the day behind bars. The hate crimes on top of that can be used to augment the sentence. They can be used for acknowledging the fact that a, the LGBT community was traumatized. Uh, but again, uh, the murder alone will send this person behind bars for the rest of his life.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, the the president has also renewed his call for an assault weapons ban. It sounds like the details of this case may be more complicated than that. Um, if part of this was not a registered gun at all, um, in the past you were against an assault weapons ban when you were in Congress back in 2013. You changed your position in 2018. Given that you're the chief executive of the state now, would you like to see an assault weapons ban?
9: Uh, Well, I would say, look, we learn from from each instance, but you also have to look at all the causes. So is there a way to improve gun safety out of this to make sure that red flag laws are are used? Not only uh, if he had a a pistol and a a semi-automatic weapon, Uh, Do we need better laws on on ghost guns? Do we need to make sure that we have a better process around semi-automatic weapons? Open to all of those. We also need to pursue the mental health aspect of this and other shooting incidences. What and how uh, did did this fall through the cracks? We need to pursue the anti-LGBT rhetoric aspect of this. Um, I think whether it will be the case in this case or not, clearly the type of rhetoric out there that divides one group of Americans against another can set somebody over the top uh, and and, and tragically inspire them to an act of violence. We need to focus on national healing, bringing people together, and really treating one another as brothers and sisters.
2: I think people can agree, I hope, with at least that. Uh, Governor, thank you for your time today. And thank you for sticking with us through those technical difficulties and the delay that you all heard. We want to turn now. To the war in Ukraine, where residents of Kherson are fleeing the city this weekend after sustained Russian bombardment knocked out power and water supplies, the latest in Moscow's effort to undermine Ukrainian morale after more than nine months of brutal assault. CBS News foreign correspondent Chris Livesay is in Kyiv with this report.
7: Ukraine has already proven it can withstand the Russians. But what about the winter At the front line, the cold and relentless artillery may be Russia's only hope to weaponize winter and freeze Ukraine's momentum. Trenches like these become more and more commonplace the closer you get to the front line. And there's a really good reason for it. You don't just see and, and hear the flashes of artillery, but you can feel the thuds deep in your gut. Ukrainians can also feel it right at their doorstep. Natalia Krostenko was coming home after drinking tea in Kherson. Medics, overwhelmed throughout a night of bombardment, didn't arrive until morning. Their city, only recently the scene of dancing after Russia's retreat, now limps through the dark and cold. Much like the capital Kyiv, the scene of a deadly missile attack this week Ina and her son, Artu have to shelter in a community tent.
2: We have
4: no electricity and no water. Our phones and devices are out of battery. We do everything we can to distract Arthur from what's really going on.
7: Kiev's mayor, Vitali Kalichko, is fuming. Right now, before the winter, the people, uh, Putin and Russians, want to let us uh, be without electricity, without heating, without water. It's genocide. It's actually terrorism. The main goal of uh, Russians to bring depression of society. I talk to the people, no negotiations with Russians. We the people is angry. And the mayor says he never stops worrying about a nuclear disaster. In fact, the shelling has been so severe the country had to disconnect all of its nuclear power plants temporarily. It was the first time in 40 years. Margaret.
2: Chris Lipsay, thank you. That's going to be it for us today. Thank you all for watching. And until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Chief Medical Advisor to President Biden, Dr. Anthony Fauci, Democratic Congressman and Majority Whip, Jim Clyburn of South Carolina, former U.S. Secretaries of Homeland Security, Michael Chertoff and Jay Johnson, and Democratic Governor of Colorado, Jared Polis. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates in CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our CBS News streaming network on Sundays at 1.30, 10 p.m. Eastern and again at 4 a.m. the next morning and it's available through our apps CBS News and Paramount Plus.
0: If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music.